This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we continue our tribute to Mike Davis, who died on October 25th. Mike was a writer, historian, political activist, urban theorist, and author of dozens of books. The outpouring of articles, remembrances, and tributes are a testament to Mike's powerful and distinctive influence, his tireless life as a fighter against everything that diminishes human dignity and ravages the planet. He was also a dear friend and a friend of this program. Today, we play two of the first interviews I did with Mike in the mid-1980s. The first is from July 1986 on Mike's just-completed first book, Prisoners of the American Dream, which was published on the centenary of May Day, 1886, only in 1986. And we discuss what makes the American working class different, the political economy of Reaganism, which began with a frontal attack on unions, intensifying the employer and government offensive against organized labor. The second interview from February 1988 coincided with the Justice for Janitors campaign. David Diaz joins Mike in the discussion of L.A. politics, looking at what redevelopment in Los Angeles had wrought. Los Angeles, like the rest of the country, was switching from a manufacturing to a service economy, though in Los Angeles, manufacture continued using very low-wage immigrant labor in sweatshops, construction, and non-union clerical workers, a black and brown workforce in a city with a growing homeless crisis because of the lack of affordable housing for its workforce. We're going to follow that with a newer interview with Mike Davis and co-author John Wiener discussing their 2020 compelling history of Los Angeles in the 1960s, a hotbed of political, social, and cultural upheaval and rebellion called Set the Night on Fire. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Susie Wiseman, and today I'm doing an interview with an old friend of mine who's visiting Los Angeles, Mike Davis, who is an editor of New Left Review and teaches at Evergreen State College in Washington. And Mike has also written a book on the politics and history of the American working class. What's the name of that going to be? It's called Prisoners of the American Dream. Several very important articles in New Left Review on the origins of the American labor movement, on uh, why the American working class is different. He's written on exterminism and on the politics of E.P. Thompson. What else? Any other books, Mike? A number of articles on the political economy of Reaganism, on restructuring of uh, the international economy under Reaganism. And recently I've been writing a lot on urbanism. Okay, and Mike is also um, in... Uh, He's now just edited a book called The Year Left, which is an American socialist yearbook. Would you tell us something about that? Yeah, this is a kind of interesting project. Uh, we've created an American yearbook, uh, an annual, the first edition of which is focused on two things, on the 1984 U.S. elections, and has a debate from the entire spectrum of uh, socialists left in America, Manning Marable, Bob Brenner, David Plotke of Socialist Review, Stephanie Kuntz, uh, second section on politics and culture in Central America. The concept of the, the year lot is to provide a socialist yearbook, which will contain debates not only on United States politics, economy, and labor movements, but will also be a forum to engage socialists 
uh, from Canada, from Latin America, and from the Caribbean, and discussing the kind of interface, political and theoretical interface of our movements. Uh, the next issue of the year left will be edited by Manning Marable and will be about withered black movement in America. How often, is it, how often are you going to publish these? It'll come out every year. So it's really similar to the Socialist Register in Britain, in a sense. Yes, very much inspired by the Socialist Register. The difference is that the, the focus of the year left is specifically on America, and America in the broadest sense. Okay, well, let's get into it, because I really want to talk about some of the studies that you've done for this book, uh, Prisoners of the American Dream, and on your analysis of maybe uh, the malaise that we find ourselves in in the States today. And let's, let's just go back a little bit into history. Maybe you'd like to explain to the listening audience why it is that there isn't a labor party in the United States. Well, there's traditionally been two approaches to this question. One approach is to simply deny that it's an important question, which is to say that there's a broad historical school that believes that American history is exceptional in its origins and that a question like this really isn't a significant one. Amongst academic historians, for instance, there's a current of thought much influenced by the work of a historian named Hartz, and his thesis is simply that America was a fragment of the most liberal traditions and social relations of Europe. And so there's simply one American worldview, one monolithic culture, which is liberalism. And then American politics and really varieties of liberalism. Now, his argument is that you can't have socialism or basically class struggle politics or class-defined politics without a residue of feudalism, and that both the working class and the middle classes and owning classes in America thus have the same ideology. On the other hand, for the last decade, a whole new generation of labor historians have been very actively engaged with the question of American exceptionalism. That is why there hasn't been a labor or socialist party in the United States as a kind of central overriding theme of their work. Most of these studies have advanced one or sometimes two primary causes, be it early political incorporation in the first white male universal suffrage system, or they pointed to variables like ethnic disunity and immigration or to race and so on. Now, actually, in my book, I try and propose a third approach, which is to to understand how these variables, these different structural and causal variables, have operated within specific historical opportunities. In other words, I begin with the argument that American history is not predetermined by any single variable, by any grand overarching ideology or constitutive essence, whether that's in the political system or in unusual economic mobility. But rather, I look at successive waves or generations of labor capital conflict in America and see how that labor capital conflict has opened up opportunities for the expression of the independent political interest of the American working class. Uh, and I do this within a comparative framework with Europe. Do you want me to say a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you as well, just as maybe frame it a little bit. Uh, do you view American capitalism or is the development of American capitalism as different from the development of capitalism in Europe that would allow for you know, the different development of the labor movement? Well, again, of, of course. I mean, American capitalism has always en enjoyed the advantages of high productivity, 
an unusual, if not internationally unique, uh, you know, bounty of natural resources, you know, and so on. The point is that when each of these differences is inserted in real history, uh, it doesn't give you a single direction of development. And if I could just provide you with a kind of comparative context here, uh, in Europe and in the other colonies of white settlement, such as Australia and New Zealand, there have been two principal paths toward the cre creation or the emergence of independent labor politics. In the European case, and classically in the case of social democracy, and here we're talking about the roots of the political tradition that dominates in most of continental Europe, the early working class struggles for economic organization, for trade union representation, coincided with the struggle for suffrage, and they were conducted against absolutist states or semi-absolutist states that denied the working class both the right to vote, participate in politics, and the right to organize economically. And so the form of the emergence of working class politics was to use radical political organization to also advance central democratic demands. On the other hand, there's a second road to labor politics, and that's represented by the labor parties, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and probably in some ways the most interesting example, because it's most immediate and easily comparable to the United States, has been the emergence of what you could call a, a labor-based or trade union-based uh, social democratic party in Canada, the NDP. Now, this road to political independence is different because, to take the British case, from the 1850s on, the crucial section of the English working class, the new model unions, the skilled craft workers who were the first to enjoy some suffrage, were first of all successfully incorporated in one of the capitalist parties, the liberal parties. So there was originally incorporation of the working class and the capitalist party, like in America, but later there was a break. Why was there a break? Well, for several reasons. One was the repression of trade union rights, which occurred uh, in Britain in the early 1900s, the famous Taft Vale case and so on, or in Australia in the wake of the great strikes of the 1890s, combined with the organization of the new strata of the working class of the 1880s, 1890s, the semi-skilled workers and unskilled workers and so on, which produced a momentum it forced the trade unions to go beyond the traditional liber liberal parties. In other words, the liberal parties were incapable of accommodating fundamental demands and needs of the trade unions, recognition of union rights, freedom from injunctions and court repression, and so on. So that the second path to independent class representation of the working class was in the form of more instrumental trade union-based political parties, which lacked in some ways the uh, radical character of European social democracy. So you have these, these two kind of general historical paths by which the labor movement or the working class and every other advanced industrial country has achieved some measure of independent political representation. So the question I address uh, is the fate of each of these two roads or these two scenarios in the United States. Okay, well what is it? Well, to take the first case, which is the relationship between the central democratic questions in society and working class organization, the Hart School would simply deny that there have ever been any overriding democratic questions in American history comparable to that in Europe. 
struggle for suffrage and so on. Of course, this is really nonsense, since a very large part of the American population is not only denied the right to vote, but even the freedom to uh, be recognized as human beings or citizens. Most people think that with the revolution they were given universal suffrage. In fact, it was only white propertied males that were allowed to vote, and the rest didn't come till much, much later. Of course, though I mean, I, I, I also look at the, the double side of the, the, the white suffrage, the fact that already by the 1850s, artisans, mechanics, and early industrial workers were attempting to use suffrage to advance their own economic ends. So I simultaneously raised the question on the eve of the Civil War, you know, why the early trade unions did not use existing suffrage to advance kind of laborist demands, and why, on the other hand, the central democratic question, burning democratic question in American history, which has always been that of the emancipation of black labor in America, first from slavery, second from debt peonage, and today from you know, the reimposition of, uh, you know, a second-class citizenship, why that didn't merge with laborist demands. And the truth is that there is no easy apparent answer. The answer has to be reconstructed in the history of the actual class struggles themselves. And what I argue, I'm sure some listeners are familiar with Edward Thompson's magisterial work, The Making of the British Working Class. I argue a kind of theoretical view that sees the American working class as unmade, by successive defeats. In other words, the failure to use these opportunities or to successfully build class organization has in each succeeding generation circumscribed further possibilities of advance. But the point I want to stress is it hasn't negated it entirely. And to get back to the concrete period in question, I mean, what happened in the 1850s was, of course, uh, a new immigration from Europe in the context of a country which was the most Protestant country in the world. We often forget that American Republican nationalism coincided with an enormous assertion of the Protestant character of American culture and American Republicanism. And the working class was split, you know, by profound, you know, ethnic rivalry at the workplace between the Catholic new immigrants uh, and the Protestant native working class, which was responsible, not alone, but was one of the main things that drove the mass of Irish and German Catholic immigrants to support the Democratic Party. That is into alliance with the most reactionary sector of capital of Southern plantocracy. But to give you, to clarify what I said earlier on how you can't use these single factors to explain the whole course of American history, after the Civil War, of course, things were different because of the mutual sacrifice and the preservation of the Union. Much of the hostility, much of the cultural schism political schism between Catholic and Protestant workers was overcome, and the trade union movement that emerged after the Civil War had a greater sense of unity. So we then have to refer to, you know, a different level of analysis and other factors to explain why labor in its second great period of opportunity, that is, populism in the late 1890s, why labor was unable to forge along with insurgent farmers a former Labour Party in the 1890s. And there you have to look at a, you know, a different set of conjunctural specific circumstances. So the whole point is that these various you know, general variables have a truth value, but only when seen in the actual living context of class struggle and labour capital values in American political history you know, as a whole.
And I'm talking today to Mike Davis, and we're talking about his book called Prisoners of the American Dream. And Mike's just been going over the question. I asked why there isn't a labor party in the United States, and of course there's no simple, easy, pat answer to that question, and Mike's been going over some of the historical reasons or the historical missed opportunities of the American working class. And we've just gotten up to essentially the period of populism in the 1890s. Mike, why don't you trace what's happened to the working class up into the New Deal period? And maybe in that period, can you answer the question is how the Democratic Party came to be seen in the eyes of masses of people as the party of the working class when it really wasn't, or was it? Okay, to recapitulate, I was arguing that both overriding Democratic questions and questions of trade unionism's need for political representation, that is the, the variables that have been involved in the creation of social democracy and labor parties have existed in American history. And I've referred to two watershed periods when opportunities for independent political expression of class interests were in fact urgent. One was kind of labor and abolitionism. The other was labor and populism. The next period, of course, would be Debsian socialism, which I analyze at, at, at great length in my book. But let me jump over this briefly to, to the New Deal. Now, it's usually argued that the New Deal precluded any need for mass socialist politics or independent labor politics because it met the needs of, of labor. And for the first time, you had an administration capable of manipulating labor, not through direct intervention on behalf of the bosses, but through incorporation of labor into the political economy in a reformist way. The first thing I'd simply point out to you is that the New Deal had two entirely contradictory sides. For one section of the working class, the New Deal was a somewhat weak, unreliable, but at times real ally in the accomplishment of certain minimal reforms. But for a large section of American labor, and I include here the entirety of the population bound to the soil as tenants in the South, farm laborers, small employees, and so on, the New Deal was in many ways a disaster because the agricultural policies of the New Deal strengthen agricultural reaction everywhere in the country. So on one hand, you had partial victories accomplished reluctantly through the New Deal, through the pressure of the new unions. On the other hand, the, what the New Deal accomplished in the South was a modernization of southern agriculture that shifted the whole burden of accommodation onto the southern labor, and particularly on, on, on blocks. And, you know, it was, you know, it was a great defeat. And pursue this a little more. Uh, it, it's argued that the Roosevelt administration was sympathetic to labor, but I point out innumerable instances where democratic state governments, for instance, during the 1934 textile strike, in 11 states mobilized the militia to break the unions. After the 1937 Republic Steel Massacre, FDR basically you know, washed his hands of any responsibility, refused to intervene. And, of course, in this very city in 1941, during the North American strike, Federal troops were mobilized with bayonets in hand, just as in, during the Pullman strike. And this was all done by the great friend of the working class? Great, you know, the, you know, the great, great friend of, 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 of the working class. So one has to look at deeper factors for the failure of the left or the labor movement as a whole in the 30s to acquire more independent expression. Now, that independent expression could have occurred in a variety of ways. There were different projects in the 1930s. One project, of course was to strengthen and build a mass party 
around one of the two existing parties of socialism, the Communist or the Socialist Party. Another project uh, was to build a national farmer labor party. And listeners should recall that between 1934 and 1936, farmer labor parties, third parties, independent parties, were in power in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Minnesota, through the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation in Washington and Oregon, and in California, the epic movement of Upton Sinclair briefly made the uh, Democratic Party of California somewhat of a surrogate in social democracy. In poverty in California. Wasn't yes, that what it was? Yes, epic. Yes. In poverty yes, in California. Just 50 years out. ago. So the early New Deal saw a, a renaissance of independent political experiments and parties that critically supported Roosevelt, but were independent of the democratic machine, which, remember, was totally dominated by these corrupt big city patronage machines, such as the Kelly Nash machine that murdered the Republic steel workers, or by the Southern boss machines. And, and beyond this, of course, the New Deal didn't work. In 1930, end of 1937, after uh, a wave of successful strikes, you had a return of a recession, falling to a deep trough, the second worst depression in the uh, 20th century after the, you know, the 1933 Nadir. Roosevelt's economic policies, because they were simply too meager and uh, you know too eclectic, were incapable of restoring or creating a mass consumption economy. So the New Deal went into profound crisis in 1938, which, as most of us know, was you know only saved by the advent of the Second World War. So one of the key questions in 20th century history is why, in this period of crisis of the New Deal, growing attacks and and a rebirth of the strength of conservative politics in the U.S., the emergence in Congress of a conservative coalition between Southern Democrats and Republicans, which has persisted to this very day as the actual pivot of power in Congress. Why in this circumstance the already existing third parties weren't strengthened? And How do you answer that question? Well, again, I mean, the, the answers are complex, but one factor is, is very obvious, though scarcely addressed in most of the traditional literature. And this was the war between the AFL and the CIO. The CIO mobilizing the sons and daughters of the new immigrants of the Debsian period of the First World War period, the AFL in some ways representing still the nativist traditions of the American working life. You can't simply reduce it to the simple cultural-ethnic split. Uh, it was also more than that. But the point was that the AFL in 1937-1938, declared a holy war on the CIO. It went to extraordinary lengths, not only to the signing of sweetheart contracts with manufacturers, but to the wholesale opposition to things like the Fair Labor Standards legislation of 1938, minimum wage and so on. You know, They resorted to an alliance with the most reactionary sections of, of, of capital to oppose the advance of the CIO. So the tragedy was that the historical moment and it would seem that independent labor politics were most favored in the United States, middle 20th century. The labor movement itself was, was deeply and profoundly divided. Let's take a jump, because we only have about five minutes left, and we haven't gotten into Reaganism at all. And I wondered if you could just tie it all in in sort of your grand sweeping style <laughs> and, and maybe discuss the rise of Reaganism and what it represents. And well, difficult to do for I have kind of a complicated argument in five minutes, but I suppose one of the things that 
is kind of unusual about my book. I mean, having here discussed American labor working class for uh, over a half hour, is the exceptional importance I attach to independent political mobilizations in the middle strat in the United States. Now, by middle strat, I don't mean a single, single class. I mean independent professionals and entrepreneurs, small and medium-sized businessmen, a whole spectrum of, of social strata. And if the 60s were the period of movements of you know, the working poor, blocks of initial mobilization of women in Chicago, it's the 70s had been, as the LA Times once put it, the Watts riots of uh, the middle class. And it's not merely a question of capital and labor, but it's a question of you know, an aggressive mobilization of the middle class to strengthen the state in the provision of income and entrepreneurial opportunities and social services for that middle class around the whole ethos of entrepreneurialism and so on. My analysis in the new right is somewhat different from other writers. I don't see, in a sense, the, the new right as the main danger, but rather as the kind of midwife, as powerful as it may be, that's brought into being a realignment of American politics around what I call the broad right, a broad right which is represented in the Republican Party by a variety of pro-entrepreneurial middle-class forces which have challenged at times the traditional business wing, and in the Democratic Party by what we loosely call neoliberalism. And I make the argument that neoliberalism and neoconservatism are in some sense the side of the same coin. But in the Democratic Party, very clearly the 1984 election definitively marked the secession of a neoliberal growth politics oriented toward the middle class and the sections of capital over any of the historic interests of labor and blacks. But this poses, then, a very interesting question, that on one hand, the Jackson campaign revealed that there does exist in the United States a constituency for anti-imperialist, pro-full employment politics, anti-Cold War politics. The black electorate is functionally, in every way, the analog of the social democratic working class electorate in Western Europe. At the same time, Jesse Jackson was the father of Gapone, so to speak, mm-hmm. of black politics, because the ultimate aim of the whole campaign was to use independent mobilization to renegotiate position of blacks in the Democratic Party. They've been rejected. And though the short and maybe medium-term prospectus is not very bright, certainly the, the decline of the Democratic Party, its refusal of any longer a universal reformist pretense, opens a space in American politics once again, a necessary space, an urgent space for independent mobilization. So I conclude my book with some speculations about the future of a kind of grassroots rainbow coalition and the relationship between that and the forces of uh, international solidarity, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Great. Well, thanks. You've managed just to tie that up very beautifully and and leave it on on an optimistic note. That's all the time we have for Portraits of the USSR today. I want to thank my guest, Mike Davis, who is visiting here today from England and from Seattle. He teaches at Evergreen, Evergreen State College, but he's also an editor of New Left Review, so it sort of takes him back and forth. 
And Mike has just written a book called Prisoners of the American Dream, and he is one of the editors of The Year Left, which is an American socialist yearbook. The first volume appears in 1985, and it is edited by Mike Davis, Fred File, and, and Mike Sprinker. And Mike Sprinker, and it's going to be something that all socialists will absolutely have to have on their bookshelves. Mike has also written several articles on the working class that have appeared in New Left Review, and I'd like to thank him for returning to Los Angeles and for being on Portraits of the USSR. I'm Susie Wiseman. Please stay tuned. Portraits of the USSR with Susie Weissman, February 25, 1988. Today, the program is more about social change and less about the USSR. In fact, today, the program's about Los Angeles the, and L.A. City Line. Sometime back, I read an article on my morning program, Read All About It. Uh, it was an article by Mike Davis on the streets of Los Angeles and the internationalization of Los Angeles, the first truly postmodern city or harbingers of things to come in the 21st century. And so today I've invited Mike Davis and um, David Diaz, who's an urban planner, to discuss L.A. City Line and the problems of living in Los Angeles. Mike Davis is an editor of New Left Review. He's written a book called Prisoners of the American Dream. And his article, The Streets of Los Angeles, appears in New Left Review. And will he teaches at the Southern California Institute of Architecture. David Diaz is an urban planner specializing in environmental planning. He is one of the directors of El Riscate, and he belongs to minority and homeowner organizations. Welcome to the Portraits of the USSR. Thank you. Thank you. So let me just ask you to start off with, why is L.A. a postmodern city, and do we really want the rest of American cities to look like it in the future? Is this the first third world city in the first world? Oh, Susie, let's not bother too much about whether L.A. is a postmodern city and maybe consider the specific reason or the, the general tra- conditions, rather, and why a third-world city can grow up within a first-world city. And the foremost of those reasons is simply the fact that the constraint of organized labor and organized social movements to assure the rights of citizenship, to assure the standards of labor, to assure wages, have virtually collapsed in Southern California and made it possible to create hundreds of thousands of sub-minimum wage, minimum wage jobs to make hundreds of thousands of people underhoused or homeless and to put hundreds of thousands, if not a million, a million and a half people in the condition of being second-class citizens, deprived of most normal rights and entitlements that accrue to citizenship. And it's precisely these kinds of issues and conditions that L.A. City Line has been formed to discuss and talk about as a network of urban activists and uh, researchers. What is L.A. City Line? First, why don't you tell us, David, what L.A. City Line is? L.A. City Line is a group of individuals, urbanist planners, community organizers throughout the central city who are going to get together and discuss various aspects of development, growth, employment, housing, crime, as it relates to the inner city, and focus on how governmental policies, i.e. the redevelopment agency here in this city and the city council, are responsible for a lot of the problems that Mike enumerated. 
When we look at our spatial relationships of office high-rise, subsidizing major multinational corporations for space, a lack of uh, affordable housing, construction by government entities with money that they have available for community groups, and a complete lack of concern for the creation of jobs for the underclass in the city are at the cornerstone of the problems uh, that we want to address through this forum. We're going to have an interesting panel representing the new wave of the labor movement in Los Angeles. Maria Elena DeRazzo from the Hotel uh, and Restaurant Employees Workers Union, Julia Hoff from the uh, Representing Justice for Janitors, which is a campaign of SEIU 399, Peter Olney, who's one of the staff organizers for the Garment Workers Union, and probably representative from the Amalgamated Clothing Workers. These are all four new wave organizing campaigns in downtown that have had to pioneer new labor tactics and strategy to deal with conditions in the sweatshops and unorganized industries of downtown, especially the use of community labor alliances, trying to draw support from the, the broader inner city community on the behalf of labor organizing. Because what I think what a lot of people in Los Angeles don't realize is that probably the biggest single open shop ghetto or center, as it were, in the United States is right here in downtown Los Angeles, partially created with public monies and public subsidies. There's approximately 200,000 unorganized uh, workers in the private sector downtown, unorganized clericals, sweatshop workers, and garment and uh, furniture and, and so on. You mentioned in the beginning that these people are often earning min- sub-minimum wage. What's, what's an average for, p- say, people in the, in the garment industry, in the sweatshops downtown? Can well, you can, you can figure that most people working downtown in any of the manufacturing industries are making minimum wage under $5 an hour. But there's also thousands of family members and people employed in the so-called informal economy who are making less than a minimum wage. And under labor conditions, which uh, recall the worst of the 19th century. How much of the putting out system has been uh, reinvigorated in Los Angeles? That is, the people having the sewing machines and the other, and industrial sewing machines in their own home? Oh, the clocks run backwards. It's like one of these uh, Hollywood movies in, in a time machine where you go back to some good old days, except the good old days here are the industrial squalor and exploitation of the, uh, the pre First World War I period, repealing. 50 or 60 years of labor organizing in downtown L.A. We shouldn't forget that the same unions with the unions that were pioneering labor organization here in the 1920s and 30s and, you know, long, hard-fought struggles uniting Jewish and Mexican women in the garment shops in the 1920s or the furniture workers in, in East L.A. We've, you know, the labor movement's having to go over the same ground again, again well, from scratch, and this is to a large extent the result of conscious city policies. Okay, that's what I wanted to ask you. First of all, did this come about through a lack of vigilance, say, on the part of the labor union orga- organizers, or is this got very? What, what does this have to say about uh, Bradley's helmship of the city? Well, the city has been able to develop a strategy where they're giving massive taxpayer investments to uh, major banking institutions in southern in the state of California and other major builders from throughout the world, for, especially for the Bunker Hill area. Well, they've completely ignored any kind of reindustrialization in the eastern part of the city. They've just hoped that somehow uh, manufacturing would survive to a limited extent while well, they changed our economy into service-oriented, office-oriented, low-wage uh, structure. The other problem that comes into play here on the city policy is affordable housing and the fact that the redevelopment agency in the city have completely ignored, refused, 
uh, worked against the the production of affordable housing throughout the city, which is supposedly the redevelopment agency's mandate in some respects. And so in combination of low wages, continued destruction of affordable housing throughout the city, right now the homeless crisis in the public's view has to shift from single individuals to families with working class families with children who cannot live in healthy, clean, uh, safe conditions. So basically the two things go together. The fact that you've got uh, low wage and sub-minimum wage and then, of course, uh, very, uh, the building of condominia, destruction of low-income housing. Well, see, I mean, one of the shocking symptoms of all this is the fact that the city doesn't even count the numbers. When you ask the city or you ask the community redevelopment agency, the city planning department, how many jobs, what kinds of jobs and jobs for whom, you know, how many women, how many minorities have been created by redevelopment, they can't give you an answer because they don't know. Yet what the community redevelopment agency represents is nothing less than an industrial policy, a jobs policy for L.A., the single biggest economic program in the city of L.A., where you've taken up to a billion dollars of tax flow, tax revenue, essentially off the roll, siphoned it off as a so-called tax increment to support private investment and commercial development downtown. And what you end up with, you know, are chrome and steel and glass 60-story buildings that inside are actually sweatshops of non-union clerical workers without rights of representation. And what we've seen over the last few years is a massive campaign against, for instance, unionized maintenance employees, janitorial employees, once had a proud, strong union downtown. It's all, almost been entirely broken by international contractors working with crews of immigrant workers making minimum wage or less. And this is one of the struggles that will be recounted tonight at our meeting about organizing downtown, the struggle of justice for janitors. And many of them are women, right? Yes, many of them are women. Most of them are, uh, you, know, you know, are minorities. I mean, the point is not to put the blame, you know, on the immigrant workers who come to this city in the struggle for life, but to rather ensure you know, through the activity of the collective labor movement in this city, the conditions of labor are such that they can support life at what's an acceptable and decent standard to working people. How difficult is it for uh, union organizers to get to these people, to organize them? Well, the, you know, the difficulty isn't uh, any difficulty or cultural approach to the people themselves. I mean, the organizers we're talking about, you know, come from the same groups and backgrounds. The difficulties are posed by the conditions of organizing downtown such that union organizers are excluded from workplaces where the uh, rights to pass are revocable. Have you ever seen those uh, plaques in the sidewalk at uh, Bunker Hill or downtown? Look, they're there, are used to prevent demonstrations. Court injunctions have been brought out. I mean, one of the stories we'll hear about is the long saga of the International Lady Garment Workers campaign against a company, Ideal Company, which has been on strike for many months now and can show what a determined employer prepared to kind of defy the law and the minimum sanctions the law uses can do to prevent organization, self-organization, even when a majority of workers have signed a union card. What I'm interested in, because you've got various different industries and unions, obviously, competing to, to get people in the inner city, how difficult is it to go in the sweatshops or, or in, in the case of people working at home on making cheap but garments? Again, the, the great difficulty in the first instance Yes. is that the workers themselves have been deprived or are deprived of the minimum guarantees of citizenship, the minimum rights to free assembly and to organization. When in the past, for How instance... How can that be enforced, by the way, the lack well, of free I assembly? Think, well, free assembly is one thing, but I think uh, 
the point we're getting at is the the fruitation of the Reagan administration policies and the National Labor Relations Board, the whole anti-labor ethic that his kitchen cabinet developed here in Southern California for the rest of the country, and a new this is this is the experimentation of immigrant labor and capital investment in a, in a deindustrialized situation here in the region. Now, the union rights have been completely emasculated. They can go on strike. They can win their strike. They can win votes. And yet, uh, as Mike just indicated, employers can virtually walk on top of the law and ignore any kind of regulatory sanction that may be imposed on them because they know that the National Labor Relations Board will take months to review the case, take months to discuss it, probably remanded to another vote where most of the workers could easily have been fired and can't be found. So as far as as far as laws it just they don't exist basically. Well remember that every time a group of inner city workers attempts to organize in this city, they immediately face the sanction of immigration law, the threat of a raid, the threat of their citizenship status being invoked. The Duke Majin administration's engaged in a major attempt to Reaganize California's uh, traditionally more advanced superstructure of labor laws and social protections, deregulating labor law here, destroying the state's own occupational safety administration. Labor inspection, as anyone who's worked in these industries can testify, has virtually collapsed. I've spent part of the last three or four months working as a truck driver in the furniture industry, and I can assure you that you know, the most elementary kinds of labor laws are entirely violated, but those have to do with hours of driving, wages, social security payments. The furniture industry is a giant sweated industry of about 75,000 people, second only to garment is a sweated industry. Minimum wage applies absolutely. Hardly any of the uh, workforce is organized. I mean, people can tell horror stories all day long. Part of what we're trying to do with the forma is to talk about what the positive experience has been and the new kinds of labor tactics and strategies necessary to organize workers under this situation. And the foundation here, the bedrock idea is that of community labor coalition, bringing the community in support of labor and using unions to support the community's struggles for decent housing, citizenship rights, and so forth. You just alluded to problems of the quarter million non-unionized labor in L.A. and In downtown L.A. In, in downtown L.A., just downtown. Remember, LA. This, used, this used to be the citadel of the open shop, and what we've seen is, is a return to the bad old days, the resurgence of the sweatshop and the open shop in L.A., and what we're talking about is the need to reunionize Los Angeles. Well, what I'd like to ask is, because we're going to get into the question of the housing crisis, and the two of these things go hand in hand, very low wage, and mm -hmm. of course, what goes with it, the housing crisis. And of course, what I'd like to start out with is to ask you how much the Bradley administration, which has been in power for 20 years, is responsible for allowing this condition to be generated, or, or I mean, what is the balance sheet of 20 years of Bradleyism? Well, the balance sheet is about 15 high-rise buildings in the West New Financial District of Los Angeles and a massive turnover from affordable housing to what I call battleship condos, whatever, however you want to term them, throughout the city. But the real key, when you look at the Bradley uh, legacy in that sense is what you're looking for, you look at the areas where he came from, the, some the quote-unquote grassroots platform that he swept himself into office for when he beat Sam Yorty, 
And you go back to those neighborhoods that he promised improvement 20 years ago after the Watts riots, the deterioration in East Los Angeles, uh, what's happening in the East San Fernando Valley. And you really don't need to analyze any data. You just have to drive through these areas if you if you have enough uh, nerve in some instances. War zones. <laughs> War zones. Uh, and, and the money that he has allowed the redevelopment agency to usurp for basically subsidizing uh, multinational corporations, banking, financial institutions, and, and major corporate business in the west, part, west side of the city and in the Bunker Hill area in particular easily could have been translated into a effective, comprehensive housing rehabilitation, housing production, economic development strategy in the minority communities where they're needed most. Basically, what we've had is 20 years of zero commitment to the minority communities. He's built one market in South Central L.A. He supported a, a Crenshaw District a revi revitalization of the shopping system center there. And yet, even in that community, there's a major controversy over the lack of black ownership and black participation. Black store owners or leases within the project itself. The only massive investment that Mayor Bradley and his regime have advocated strongly for South Central L.A. was a 100-foot smokestack that was going to burn garbage. Over $250 million. There's some commitment to never, the black community. Yeah, never has he ever conceived of focusing even a fraction of that amount of money on a concerted strategy for one particular uh, neighborhood within his own constituency, much less other minority communities or deteriorated neighborhoods throughout the city. Yeah, I just remember a recent article in the Metro section that even talked just about a little thing like uh, bus stops for RTD passengers. In the San Fernando Valley, where most people drive cars, there's very nice bus stops that are covered every several blocks. And all mm -hmm. throughout the uh, South Central area, there, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Oh, but what they're designing now for the inner city population, to the extent that they're building bus stops, they're building things like sprinkler systems in the Skid Row Park to keep people sleeping there. They're building bus benches, which are rounded so that you can't lay on them. I mean, to the extent that there's any interest at all in details of the landscape of the inner city, it's to fortify it and to make it, you know, unusable by the very needy or the homeless. But one of the things we're trying to get at here, Susie, is the fact that homelessness has attracted a lot of sensation in the press, I suppose weighed heavily on uh, the conscience of uh, more socially aware parts city. of uh, the west side of this city. But it's usually been isolated as a kind of separate social pathology and infrequently linked up to the fact that it's merely the tip of the iceberg of a vast housing crisis in the city. As the LA Times itself discovered when it sent out a team of its investigators, there's 200,000 people living in garages illegally alone in the city. These are homeless families. And how many people are, are doubling up, families doubling up in apartments? Is there any statistics on anything like that? Nothing. The city, obviously the city and are looking at the new age high-tech well, the world is afraid to use that on their own technology within its bureaucracy. Oh, but David, David, to be fair, they are creating housing, but housing for the middle class. Sure. Well, that's whole public subsidy for a yuppie space colony in downtown L.A. and its mm -hmm. condominium But apartments. even if you look through the west side and, and San Fernando Valley, I'm, you know, the mind boggles at the amount of vacant new rent uh, apartment houses and condominiums. If you just drive through any neighborhood around KPFK, you'll see... Be, uh, block after block of empty brand new condominiums. How mm -hmm. I, I don't quite understand the logistics. That's <laughs> a perverse tax system that rewards people for building expensive unoccupied condominiums. 
And now we're also faced with uh, further deterioration of the housing stock as so much of the Section 8 housing, which was the Nixon and Ford administration's alternative to public housing, is now passing, will we'll pass back into the private sector. Well, what do you see? I'm Unless sorry something's done. This is, this is a huge emergency. It'll well, that's what I want to ask you. units of... Uh, Well, what I'd like to ask, though, is just specifically what what is the future? What I mean, can you give us any scenarios what you think is going to happen? There's two scenarios. There's there's a proactive and a reactive. Mm -hmm. The reactive is that it's quite obvious that the city hall and redevelopment agency and developers and financial interests are basically focusing on the land right ringing the central city. Pico Union and uh, areas just west of the Harbor Freeway are going to be for mid-level professional housing. If they're if they're somehow able to push community communities uh, working class, the garment industry workers themselves out of this area, uh, but a real pressure is going to come on the hillside area, ringing the city, because here you have beautiful vistas of the city, you have hills that can isolate the managerial uh, executive class of corporate America that's moving into Los Angeles. And basically, over time, in another 20, 25 years, the whole range of economic class ringing the city is going to reflect uh, a very sterile concept. And and I guess you're going to have a mirror that's going to look at each other. The housing stock on one side of the freeway is going to look at the office towers, and the office towers are going to look back, and it's going to be the same. And the shanty towns, where will they be? It's a good question. San Gabriel Valley, East San Fernando Valley, there's going to be a, a further crunch in South Central Los Angeles. Proactive is what we're hoping for over time, is that labor, minority groups, homeowner groups concerned about development can come together and start to reorder the city's priorities. Um, there's a number of factors that uh, have favorable conditions, obviously, both politically and uh, socially here in the city, but a real key factor is whether or not there's going to be a labor community coalition that's going to refocus, energize themselves, and bring these issues right to the front of the city council and the redevelopment agency and reorder the city's spending priorities. There's no reason why the city should give a lion's share of its federal dollars to the redevelopment agency, why the redevelopment agency has to subsidize corporations that can virtually buy property anywhere in the world they, they don't need a write-off. Where the money's needed is in those communities of, of decline and deterioration. Well, I, why I, are they doing this? Is, well, it's what it's is the, what is the role tradi- of this traditional today? traditional redevelopment land grab. Unfortunately, what the middle class in this city doesn't realize is they pick up the tax tab. They pick up the tax tab for crime, for the police, for deteriorated streets for deteriorated neighborhoods, deteriorated for, schools. for deteriorated schools, for pressure on social services in the city, and also pressures on, on government. I mean, redevelopment agency projects and their, their expenditures and all the federal programs that started in the middle 60s were designed to alleviate this problem so that now, today, a generation later, these problems would have been solved. Today, they're worse. We're, at, we're in the post-Prop 13 era. There's less money and the cri- the crisis of crime, the crisis of homelessness and deterioration are magnified. And the only thing the city can do is go back to the middle class and say, we need more taxes for the city. 
If anything, this sounds more and more like the anarchy of the plan. In other words, there's some plan for redeveloping Los Angeles, as you've outlined, but it's incredibly short-sighted and doesn't look at a whole crucial sector of the population, which is is the working class. But see, this brings us, brings us to another uh, contradiction here, which is that the community redevelopment strategy is basically been a strategy that has been shaped by the Central City Association, the old downtown businessmen's association, the most powerful downtown group over the last 30 years. But now you have other business groups, most of them with powerful offshore participants in parts of the city like the West Bank across the Harbor Freeway in the Westlake area or in Little Tokyo or in southern parts of the city that are pursuing their own strategies and in the case of the West Bank, it's an attempt to undercut undercut land and lease values uh, in the central city, actually to outbid them, to, to build their own maverick high-rises on the West Bank and compete with the, uh, the central city, and in an area which uh, is not a CRA redevelopment zone. And this is interesting because it shows the kind of anarchy of competition for land development that's occurring, but it also poses in some ways one of the most direct threats in an area the West Bank, Westlake, Pico Union area, which is the classical tenement district in L.A., is the portal of entry, particularly for Central American immigrants to the city, which is the most overcrowding, the most desperate housing need. And what you're seeing happening there uh, is the beginning of a scenario that will evict thousands of people already go down to Temple Beaudry and see the raised lots and in, in, you know, in hillsides. And most of these people will be driven to even more desperate housing strategies if not forced out on, on the street. And this whole process has been largely invisible. Shantytowns exist all over Los Angeles right now. A shantytown is the converted garage in the backyard. A shantytown is the three families doubled up in a, in a two-bedroom apartment. Despite the innumerable gestures these days about, you know, by politicians downtown, about community participation, citizen participation, most of this has been happening without any more participation than ever occurred in the past. For instance, this whole West Bank development, which involves the hammering out of a, of a West Bank, Central City West plan, by the City Planning Commission and through the support of the largest landowners in the West Bank, has occurred so far without a single community hearing or any citizen input whatsoever. And what's yet the, the district of a very liberal uh, council person, uh, Gloria Molina. I'm speaking to Mike Davis and to uh, David Diaz on the future of the inner city. I just want to go back to the image that, that you brought up, David, and that was of the mirror, the ring, the hillside communities looking at the office buildings, looking back at the hillside communities, and what you don't see or what you would like to see disappear or just uh, what you would like to disappear is the real living conditions of the masses of the working population of the of the inner city and elsewhere. And it reminds me, again, of of bringing the third world into Los Angeles, except in the third world, the bourgeoisie doesn't like to see uh, the poverty around it and eventually emigrates and tries to run their businesses from some other more pleasant well, capital. Naturally. <laughs> and, and, and what you see is every business leader and every politician in the city raves about the city's ethnic diversity. But when they, you ask those groups that have been here a long time or for a short time, to participate in power, participate in reshaping the city, participate in, in developing a new, sensible fa urban fabric, the diversity segment somehow drops out of the equation. And the only, the only thing that they're good for is the upper class that can come in and invest and buy, buy a 
apartment buildings, invest in office buildings and others, but the ethnic minorities in the city are being completely shut out, and it's it's reflected in the housing policies and the economic development policies of the city. It can't go much on much longer, though. It's also reflected in the struggle over public spaces and the future of public spaces in the city, including its great boulevards and parks and mixed-use facilities. key instance of this is Broadway Spring Street. Broadway Corridor is celebrated mm-hmm. as an example of kind of ethnic vitality as it's become the largest Spanish-language shopping street outside of Mexico City in North America. Yet at the moment, the future of this whole area, which functions as a kind of vibrant center for Spanish-speaking Los Angeles, uh, has been put in question by major strategy uh, to gentrify the area, miracle on, on Broadway, as the Bunker Hill crowd begins to wonder how it can kind of annex this as a gas-like district. So this struggle that we're talking about, about housing and jobs and so on, is also a struggle about public spaces and the very definition of the, the city's form. And also, I mean, we sh- I'm going to let the callers get in, but we sh- also what goes into this is what you began with, which was the crisis of rights in the inner city and, of course, the new immigration laws and whether or not it's possible to deny citizen rights and, and the rights of uh, free assembly and, and organization and everything else to a, a, a growing uh, segment of the city. Well, we see this in two dimensions. One is the city's increasingly depend on the labor force, which itself lacks the citizen entitlements you know, that should belong to labor regardless. But secondly, we see a new and growing kind of hysterical assault on the civil rights, particularly in minority and inner-city youth, in the wave of so-called attempts to suppress gang activity and so on, with barely a word said about the underlying structural fact- factors that have predisposed so many thousands of kids to gang activity. Probably the greatest single instance of voter dilution and the kind of structural denial of uh, citizens' rights in this country is the political fragmentation of the Spanish-speaking Latino areas of Los Angeles. And this can only be addressed through fairly radical reform of uh, political boundaries and of city lines. Okay, well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. I want to thank my guest, Mike Davis, who has written Prisoners of the American Dream and on the streets of Los Angeles. He's an editor of New Left Review. And David Diaz, who's an urban planner specializing in environmental planning. Both of you for being with me today. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to be talking about Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. It's our subject. Mike Davis and John Wiener, the authors, are here to tell the story. This is a monumental book put out by Verso Press. I won't scare you with how many pages it are, but it's dense. It's an amazing story. I have to say I'm a fast reader. I had to read it slowly just to take it all in. And what a great pleasure it was. I could not put it down. Mike Davis is a writer, historian, longtime political activist, professor emeritus at UCR. He sort of is populated throughout this book. Mike and John Wiener is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. He's also a longtime KPFK programmer. He's also an emeritus professor of U.S history at UC Irvine. And this book is an account and a history of youth radicalism and revolt and the unprecedented police violence employed against any signs of protest, resistance, revolt to the status quo. And that status quo was racist to its core, 
deeply anti-communist and anti-left. It was informed by a Red Scare mentality. The protesters and organizers were young, often junior high and high schoolers, also university students later, as we see, and young people just generally. But the constant throughout the book is the police who use deadly violence against them, beating, sometimes killing, mostly with impunity and mostly targeting blacks and browns. But it seems to me, Mike and John, that this book comes at an incredibly fitting moment. And maybe I could just ask each of you in turn to spell out what you think are the main arguments and themes of the book. And let's start with you, Mike. Well, one thing we wanted to explore in the book, which is something that's uh, been dealt with in very masterful ways in the history of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, really hasn't been a major theme in the histories of the New Left of the 60s in the North, is what social forces involved in the protest movements, who's mobilized. And in Los Angeles, although both of us were active in LA in the 60s, I think we were surprised to discover that if you look at this as a whole, high school students and even junior high school students, plus kids in the community colleges play the extraordinary central role in the struggle. And it's above all a struggle led by youth of color, black, Chicano, but also Asian Americans and and others. Secondly, we wanted to try and understand this from a strategic standpoint. Years ago, I was in Frankfurt, Germany, and I got invited to uh, IG Metall, the biggest metal workers union in the world, by their education department. And they showed me this incredible summer school they had where workers who shop stewards would get a couple weeks off. They'd go to this camp. They'd bring their wives and kids along who had their own activities. And they would basically war game modern German history. They would refight the revolution of 1918-1919. They would revisit 1932 and 1933. Because the union argued that uh, these struggles were so important tactically and strategically that this was one of the best methods to teach the union activists. And so we went back to the 60s in the hope of looking at this kind of wargaming it once again to understand what kinds of uh, strategic ideas inform the struggles of the period to review some of the debates that occurred, particularly, say, on an issue like, is it at all important for radicals to support, critically support liberal reforms, for instance, to participate in electoral politics? A lot of us didn't. I want to take it back then and let's start to situate this, because you begin the book literally going back into the sort of recent pre-war and post-war history of Los Angeles and situated, of course, at the beginnings of the civil rights movement, but also, you know, paint this picture of the incredibly racist politics that for those who may only know the Los Angeles of today, you might be surprised by this. And And I think the other thing that comes through here is how much LA is seen as 
in this period, a city of the South. And I think you have a great way of putting it, and I'll let you do it, uh, Mike, later on. But it's also, you know, something where people came from the Dust Bowl, and that there's a lot of uh, roots to the kind of racism uh, that you see. But then, as I mentioned in the intro, to informed by the Red Scare politics. So I'd like to kind of go back and just talk in the very beginning about the way that you see the civil rights movement and, you know, that racism setting the stage for the 60s. And perhaps we start with Mike on that one. Well, California was relatively unique amongst non-Confederate states in having legal residential segregation. That is, the state Supreme Court on several occasions upheld restrictive covenants, including ones that were adopted after subdivisions were already developed by a vote of majority of neighbors. These are actually parts of the deed to your house. And restricted covenants prevented the sales of the home to people of color and often to Asians, particularly Japanese Americans, and in some cases to Jews. Now, at the end of the Second World War, there's an extraordinary uh, labor and civil rights upsurge in Los Angeles on basis of the broadest unity the city had ever seen. And in some ways, the unity that even exceeds that that came into existence during the 1960s. And one of the big battles and great successes was that Lauren Miller, who's a key figure in the civil rights history of L.A. down and through the 1960s, a young lawyer who actually prepared the ground for Brown versus Topeka Board of Education decision, went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they overthrew legal residential segregation in California, but provided no means to change that. So when uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, the new U.S. Civil Rights Commission, came to Los Angeles at the beginning of the 60s, they discovered a city that was more extremely segregated probably than any other American city except for possibly uh, Chicago. This was ultra-segregation. And in a series of hearings, it revealed the kind of violence and even terrorism that enforces boundaries. And we start with one case involving a white homeowner who sold his house to an African-American. He happened to believe that he shouldn't discriminate. He welcomed him as a neighbor. And both the homeowner and the guy that uh, sold the house was subjected to months of harassment, terrorism, physical threats. The valley, apart from the historic black community of Pacoima, the beginning of the 60s, was totally segregated. The school system, of course, was also segregated. But the thing is, in 1960s, becoming more segregated than it had been in 1945, because you had a number of areas in the blue-collar neighborhoods in South Central, but also on the east side. You had integrated high schools. The east side was spectacular in that way. I would Lincoln High School annual from 1938. It's just amazing to see kids from 12, 13 different, you know, ethnic groups and races. But segregation was accelerating at the beginning of the 1960s. And finally, and this becomes a crucial element in the events that lead up to the Watts Rebellion, with the beginning of the Kennedy boom in the economy, 
after a kind of bad patch of restructuring in the aerospace industry, Los Angeles, for white people, had more or less full employment for a whole decade. But at the same time, there was increasing unemployment in South Los Angeles. So we have here the fact that not only is this a historically segregated city, but the third biggest city at the end of the decade, the second biggest in the United States, is becoming more segregated year after year in all the crucial important areas of housing, schools, and jobs. And this is a critical thing that you're talking about when you talk about sort of the roots of the uh, Watts Rebellion. I think you talk about the police as the sort of major unemployer, in a sense, or, or you know, the violence and the constant arrests mean that all of those kids who were picked up and charged have a very difficult time getting employment apart from the already unequal, let's say, spread of the boom in this period in their community. So again, we go back to, you know, the role of policing, enforcing this segregation and keeping these communities down. Maybe we should just go back to the Watts Rebellion, because that is in 1965 and kind of a precursor of other widespread uh, rebellions in inner cities across the country. And it was really so much a part or on the spectrum of all of the revolts taking place, including the escalating war in Vietnam. But I'd like to have you situate that. Maybe you could do it, Mike, in terms of the growing radicalism and who are the people that first came out and why? Well, the the starting point, of course, was the defeat of the United Civil Rights Movement in 1963. And then in 1964, uh, a group of uh, younger people from the Congress of Racial Equality and from Friends of SNCC tried to keep nonviolent protests going and were arrested and faced with you know, really tough sentences. So this attempt by the United Civil Rights Movement to negotiate directly with LA's elites on the broad range of issues involving housing, jobs, and schools was a failure. So it created a vacuum. And at the same time, the Rumford Fair Housing Act, Byron Rumford was a pioneering Black activist from Oakland, progressive Democrat, had been passed uh, almost miraculously in the California legislature. and. Uh, a repeal of the law was put on the ballot in November 1964, Proposition 14. And two-thirds of the white voters in California voted to repeal it. These were the two stunning defeats of reform that seemed to remove the possibility of peaceful change. And then in the spring of, of 1965, or the early summer, uh, the Watts Rebellion occurred in August. A young black woman was raped by a, two policemen and then later murdered under mysterious circumstances. This story was like a headline story in LA's two black papers, the, the Eagle and the Sentinel. It got only the very briefest note in the LA Times. But as news of this spread through the community, it was incense. So it took little more than a typical LAPD overreaction. Some black motorists stopped because they seemed to be uh, under the influence by highway patrol. And the LAPD show up and they start beating people and so on. And 
you have a, a week of rebellion. National Guards sent in. I remember TV. I was in the curfew area. TV was saying, well, the National Guard says there are no machine machine guns being used. And right then, a Jeep with a 50 caliber machine gun was by. But this was not a tragedy. This led to a community uh, renaissance, which Sean can talk about, on a broad cultural and political scale. It also led to the end of gang warfare for uh, seven or eight years. The early chapters of the book also talk about two incredible institutions that perhaps our listeners know about. One is the Free Press and Art Kunkin, and the other one is KPFK. You know, you start uh, in the chapter on KPFK on the beginnings of KPFK and the early kind of programming that I have to say, when I read it, I wept. Uh, Maybe I'd like to have you give some of the flavor to our listeners. Well, KPFK was one of the first FM stations in the United States, the biggest signal west of the Mississippi. The idea of FM at that point was that it was at high fidelity, unlike AM. So it's going to be high sound quality. So all the early FM stations were basically classical music stations. And KPFK, when it first uh, began broadcasting, this was in the late 50s, uh, was a classical music station with a couple of hours of uh, kind of high-minded public affairs programming. They had a news department that was kind of professional, middle of the road, one both sides of the story kind of news. And then they had high-minded lectures by Aldous Huxley and David Reisman and famous philosophers dealing with the big issues of human existence. Their political conception was they would be open to all points of view. So they invited people on the far right, like William Buckley, to host commentaries. And then they also had a left-wing show. They invited Dorothy Healy, the very well-known head of the Communist Party of Southern California, and she decided to call her program Communist Commentary. Now, this was a very wild thing to do in the early 50s when HUAC was still uh, holding hearings and uh, McCarthy had recently uh, been driven out of the Senate. And because of Dorothy Healy's Communist Commentary, all the right-wingers and all the centrists said they wouldn't be on the same station with the communists. So they all quit. And suddenly KPFK was the voice of the left in Los Angeles more because it stuck to its free speech principles that, well, everybody is welcome. And if Dorothy is the only one who wants to do a commentary, then she'll do the commentary. It got KPFK in trouble. Uh, there was a attempt to take away KPFK's license because more than of once. its more than <laughs> once. There, were, uh, there was a HUAC investigation of Dorothy Healy and the Pacifica Foundation for you know being under the control of uh, the, our overlords in Moscow. That went nowhere. But maybe Mike should explain a little more about why Dorothy Healy was an important person when she came to KPFK. It's really quite incredible that, you know, we already mentioned Art Kunkin and he was part of the Socialist Workers Party and the Trotskyist uh, left in the United States. But there was also a strong Communist Party and the West Coast Communist Party under the leadership of Dorothy and others was quite different than the others. But it, it really, uh, you know, it sort of begs the question, how did somebody who came out of the, you know, the old left and let's call it pro-Soviet left would have so much influence over this burgeoning new left, both black and brown, but also the anti-war movement and everything else. 
Well, the Communist Party in California, from its uh, formation at the end of the First World War, the dominant group within the party are former members of the Industrial Workers of the World, former left socialists. And the Communist Party in California was always unorthodox and peculiar, and because of that, under suspicion. Its great heroic days were, of course, on the longshore in San Francisco, San Francisco General Strike of 34, with a very active group in Los Angeles. And near the end of the war, a young party organizer named Dorothy Healy, who had served for a couple of years as a state labor commissioner, and before that, dropped out of high school at 16, stood up in a soapbox in Oakland and, you know, harangued the uh, the unemployed. She became the leader of, of the party, the district organizer. And at that point, the Communist Party in Southern California had about 10,000 members. It was a major factor in every social movement. All the fights for racial equality and desegregation and the leadership of uh, the CIO had a major base in the craft unions in Hollywood and this almost apocalyptic Hollywood strike in 1946. And then they were smashed after 1948. The, the high point was the Henry Wallace progressive campaign. And uh, Dorothy used to tell me about the comic opera of having to go underground. She spent the 50s with other party leaders in and out of jail, facing the prospect of long prison terms uh, in the rest of the country. But she never gave up trying to preserve the links with liberals and left liberals or trying to rebuild the public presence, the party. And that's why it was so path-breaking when she obtained this program on KPFK, but also became the first communist to speak in the University of California system, I believe in 1963 at UCLA. She got over a thousand students came out. It was, it was just amazing. So Los Angeles had a continuity of old left and new left that was basically uh, unique. In other areas like the Bay Area, there's, of course, Bettina Abthecker, was a leader in the free speech movement. But LA is really the only place where the Communist Party remained not only relevant, but recruited a new generation in the early 60s. I joined the Communist Party at the same time as Angela Davis because the Communist Party in Southern California supported the Czech communist reformers and opposed to the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And at that time, I believed that a communist renaissance from below was possible. And the party seemed the natural place to be. Plus, it had black leadership, an absolutely incredible group of people, including Franklin and Tendra Alexandra, who were you know, major figures in the struggles in Los Angeles in the, the late 60s. But I have to say, I fought cats and dogs with Dorothy for 20 years over the question of liberals and liberal reform. And so while writing my share of the book, I was constantly arguing in my mind with Dorothy. Uh, she's anything but dead in my, my mind. She's still alive, still giving me a hard time and forcing me to rethink the relationship between liberal reforms and radical revolt. 
else, just one question. It just occurs to me because you're seeing in the rest of the country, you know, Blacks finally entering into industry and into the auto, you know, movements and elsewhere. And much of this book talks about the way that Blacks are kept out of employment because of segregation, police violence, kept out of housing. But there is that aspect as well. And that seems to be more tied to kind of traditional left-wing politics too, including the Communist Party. And I just wondered if you could just say a little bit about how you think, you know, like if you were to try to synthesize the sort of direction or trajectory of Black politics coming out of the Watts rebellion and how, you know, maybe compared to elsewhere, how much was this like a working class rebellion or did it go in national directions? And see if you can pick that red up. There were very few students or college graduates involved, both on the South side and the the East side. Uh, You're talking about young working class people here. And people will revisit the the history of the Panthers. And they'll read all this stuff about espousing the, the lumpen proletariat and so on. But these were blue-collar kids. And after the Watts Rebellion, there was this phony report, official report, that hoed the police line. And it was blown out of the water by a number of important uh, studies, including one from UCLA. And it showed that far from having criminal records and so on, the median person arrested during the Watts Revive was uh, young, had finished high school or was in high school, had no criminal record because Chief Parker, the demon of L.A. in the uh, 60s, early 60s, portrayed the rebellion as led by this kind of residuum, this kind of criminal hardcore. But the actual surveys that were done showed that, in fact, you know, this enjoyed broad support in the community amongst older people as well. But the kids who came out and fought the police were, you know, by and large, the same kids who would have qualified if they could have had decent high schools to go to college or to hold skilled working class jobs, uh, which they were denied. And in fact, the whole period that uh, we discuss in the book. It's working class youth who are at the center of it, black, brown, and Asian. There's a thread throughout this of revolt, and you tell the stories of these intersecting stories that paint a picture of the radicalism of the period and the ferocious response by the reactionary forces in the police and also the federal response through the FBI that we know so well. But we then go through a period where I guess the question is, what is the legacy of these movements and what does it mean for today? And why did you try to, as you say, uh, keep the circle unbroken by telling these stories? Well, there are two legacies. The movements of the 60s and early 70s, for all the heroism of thousands of people and the immense energy poured into them, were all defeated in their basic goals. So one legacy is the fact that people, young people today in Los Angeles are fighting for many of the same things that their grandparents were during the 1960s. Look at the school strike uh, of teachers, community, and students last year. The issues have raised about overcrowding and so on. These are exactly the same issues that the United Civil Rights Movement was protesting in 63, the blowouts five years later. So despite the rise of liberal Democrats 
to power in, in Los Angeles. So much of the apparatus of racial and ethnic inequality and oppression remains. But there's a second legacy, which is what then happens to the people who were the activists in the 60s. If their movements did not win great victories, they nonetheless planted the seeds for further generations of activism. And if you talk to a lot of the kids involved in last year's school strike, uh, so many of my students when I was teaching at UC Riverside came out of uh, labor families in, in L.A. These memories were kept alive. They were inspiring. So what we were hoping to communicate at the end of the day wasn't just a colorful story of, uh, that happened a very, very long time ago. But to try and promote some of the, you know, the lessons and the connections that might be valuable in today's struggle, given that we're fighting for so many of the same things. And of course, now with the economy and depression and looking like it'll stay in depression from years, all the struggles of the past, the 1930s and the 1960s, have great meaning for contemporary generations. I like that very much. And it reminds me, you know, of something that Victor Serge said, too, as they were being slaughtered, you know, not by the forces of the right, but by the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union. And he said that someday new harvests of revolution will sprout up from our remains underneath. That's a great note to end on. I want to thank both of you for joining me today, Mike Davis and John Wiener, and congratulate you on this monumental book. You seemingly wrote it so quickly, it seems like it's a life's work. Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. It's from Verso Press, and I highly encourage that you not only get it, but that you take a lot of time to read it and absorb it, because there's just so much inside. Mike and John are both Professor Emeriti. They've written lots of books, and you can look them up. John Wiener and Mike Davis, thanks for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Susie.